Jason Barnwell. I work on legal business operations and strategy for Microsoft. Today, I'm chatting with Billy Rustine, an attorney at Microsoft who supports the developer division. This conversation started in Teams where Billy and I were trading ideas around some content we were asked to develop in, sort, in support of the Microsoft 365 digital transformation story. Somehow, we started talking about how people get hired into Microsoft. Um, and so we thought this would be great content to pick up. Um, I think your story is very interesting, Billy. And what amused me was, uh, in, in conversation for this, you remarked that this is not a conventional business topic. And I completely disagree, because finding a way to bring talented people to our shores is one of the most important things that we do. Uh, talent is a differentiator for us. So. Thank you for making time to chat today, Billy. Thanks for having me, Jason. So let's get into what you do. Uh, so what, tell me about your, your current role. Like, what, what is your team? What are, you, what are you up to? Let's, let's get into it. All right, so I'm, a, I'm an attorney uh, at Microsoft, and I'm, uh, as you mentioned, on the uh, support the developer division, and uh, I specifically support two teams. Um, I support uh, Visual Studio App Center, uh, which is a app which helps uh, app develop, or which is a service that helps app developers create apps for Apple and Android. Mm -hmm. um, and then I also support a client group which I inherited from you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is uh, formerly known as Visual Studio Team Services, and uh, as of yesterday was rebranded into Azure DevOps. Mm. So it's a, as the name lets you know, it's a developer operations uh, service and has five subservices underneath it. Um, the primary of which is uh, Azure uh, DevOps Pipelines, uh, which is a uh, CI/CD pipeline. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What, what is that? What is that? <laughs> uh, CI/CD is uh, continuous integration, continuous development, mm -hmm. and uh, developer operations. I, it's funny. I was explaining this to my. I, I sent the, the link to my dad yesterday, and he read it and he said, "I have no idea what that is." <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, "Think of developer operations as uh, as a way of best practices to improve the quality of your code base uh, before." it gets shipped to public and after and so I, I told him to think of it much in the vein of like if you're writing a document uh, you're most likely going to spell check it before you send it off to someone to read or publish uh, because you don't want to have it riddled with errors uh, you know grammatical or spelling or otherwise and so that anyway it made more sense to him that way and so developer operations is uh, similar to that uh, um, in that vein right so um, anyway, so that's what Azure DevOps does. They try to help uh, developers uh, improve the quality of their code base. I think there's another really good analogy that comes from, so I'm going to nerd out for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think there's another good analogy that comes from what you're talking about there, and as much as uh, Azure DevOps also gives you a centralized place to put all your code, right? Yeah. yeah. And so one of the things that I think many of us who practice law are very frustrated by is in many instances we don't have centralized knowledge management right and it, which is I, I will you know I'll note that uh, at Microsoft because we have these amazing technologies we actually do not have a centralized process we have a, a, a lot of kind of discrete approaches to uh, how we do KM and I think that is one of the hidden superpowers of Azure DevOps is it does bring all these assets to one place Place, you can do exactly what you were talking about, where you chain in a bunch of best practices that result in you releasing highest quality code. 
and the thing that I would love to do is figure out a way to bring more of those practices into the legal profession because I think there are so many direct analogs to what you are talking about, thinking about the process of creating high quality outputs and really putting thoughtful processes and tools around that yeah. so that when you are doing your work, you're focused on the, the pieces of that that create the most value and you're not having to go back and proofread and spell check because you have these other things that do that for you. So yeah, I know we weren't planning to talk about that, but no. you pulled me into a nerd, <laughs> nerd maelstrom. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the uh, one of the things that you now you mentioned that it's, it's interesting is I guess when I first started in this, and we'll talk about this a little later, I'm mm-hmm. sure. But uh, one of the things that I was first surprised when I when I went in house was I worked I started another company um, called Caverity, which did static analysis, static code analysis, and dynamic code analysis. And one of the things that was shocking to me was that it's very hard to sell the product to companies. And when you think about it, it's like my my analogy earlier to um, spell checking, right? Is you would never submit a document or you would rarely submit a document that hasn't been spell checked. But it's, um, you know, it's more common than you would imagine for developers to submit, to check in code that actually hasn't um, gone through some of these practices. And, uh, you know, that's how you accrue technical debt, right? Which eventually at some point, um, it causes a huge problem down the road if, you know, something really hits the fan. Um, and you, you, you know, your team is not spending time doing forward-looking, exciting projects. You're actually spending a significant amount of time going backwards and, you know, fixing the problems that you might have been caught had you had a, a robust uh, DevOps practice in place uh, at the at the outset. Are you sure you're an attorney? <laughs> this is, are you talking about Sound static like analysis, <laughs> dynamic analysis, CI/CD? This is this is getting getting pretty deep. Well, while we're here, let's let's go full on. So. Can you help me understand really the business of what your clients do? So how does it fit into Microsoft's larger play? Because as best I can tell, a lot of the value that your clients create, we basically give away. Yeah. Yeah, so we uh, we give away you know a lot of uh, a lot of the service for free um, to a lot of our customers. It's you know the enterprise customers is um, you know are we charged because they have a significant um, you know workload on our systems? But um, we're part of helping customers make their digital transformation, mm-hmm. and much like the things we were just talking to about you know trying to avoid technical debt and things like that, um, DevOps is a big is a big piece of that. Um, and so my clients are you know they're really trying to. Um, just get this adopted in the marketplace. And as, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not as common as you would think um, as a practice. And um, so what they're what they're trying to do is make it easier for developers to adopt. Um, they're also trying to make it, um, you know, there's really no one uh, market leader at the moment. Um, and so they're trying to, you know, it's a, it's a battle out there, right? And so mm-hmm. they're trying to, um, you know, they're trying to get the largest market share, um, you know, vis-a-vis their competitors, right? In the in the various uh, aspects, and they think that they're well positioned, that they have a good, you know, suite of offerings, right? And that they there's competitors that offer, you know, at least one little snippet of what they do, mm-hmm. but there's not one competitor, you know, they think they feel who offers everything that they do in one spot. But you don't have to, you know, go back to a sales pitch, right, for a second. But you know, it's one of the things they in this rebranding is that um, they wanted to make it clear that customers don't have to, you don't have to acquire the whole DevOps suite, right? Is that you can only use it. You you don't necessarily need to use it for all five. You can use you know one particular suite if you want um, instead of you know you don't have to. You can buy some all, mm-hmm. you know, or just one of them. 
But basically, these tools are a catalyst for your digital transformation. Yeah. They basically lower the activation energy and, and the lift to, to build those new workloads that are going to accelerate your business. And yeah. So it sounds like we, we basically you know, help people, uh, customers acquire those so that we can hasten their digital transformation. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. So let's, let's talk about your path and, and how you got here. So let's start off with why did you decide to go to law school? Well, uh, it's I'm I'm laughing because I've I've been reading a book uh, recently about um, uh, it's it's called the, it's it's about the RAP framework, which is like it's an acronym WARP, mm-hmm. and um, it's like you know widen your widen your perspective, um, and then it's the R is a reality um, is a reality test your assumptions. Um, and then uh, I'm drawing a blank right now on the A. It'll come back to me. <laughs> but uh, but um, one of the uh, one of the things they were talking about when I was, when I was reading yesterday was you know is is take some real time you know get some get some experience in what you're doing right. And so um, take your uh, so one of it was like if you go to law school right you should probably you know maybe before you go to law school you should go intern um, at, at a law firm so you understand whether uh, you know whether it's an experience that you enjoy or that you don't enjoy and same similarly if you want to be a pharmacist you should probably go work in a pharmacy um so that's a way of me telling you that i did not do any of that (laughs) (laughs) um so i i uh like like many uh college kids who are about to graduate college you know my 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 mom says to me you know you you like to argue and you're very talkative so i think you'd be a good lawyer now keep in mind my mom's not a lawyer so she has no idea what it would take to be a lawyer so i think well yeah that sounds like a great idea um, so I, you know, one thing led to another, I, I, I had, um, I, I took, uh, like four, four years and a couple quarters at UC Santa Barbara. And so I was there for a quarter I didn't have anything to do. And so I said, well, I'll take one of these bar prep classes and, you know, I did that. And then anyway, I ended up, um, you know, started going to law school. Right. And so, um, I didn't do any of the, uh, I think I talked to a couple people about what law school and lawyering was like, but you know, now in hindsight, right. It's like painfully obvious that I did not do anywhere near the amount of due diligence <laughs> that I should have done. I probably, I probably did more due diligence for, you know, I don't know if sending out a party invite or something probably <laughs> than I did for looking at a career. But, um, you know, well, is, uh, is, um, as we'll get to it. The story does have a happy ending. Um, but, uh, that's, <laughs> that's how I ended up. At, that's how I ended up at law school. So I actually, I started off at, um, so I started off at Whittier Law School. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, uh, despite going to Santa Barbara, I wasn't a, uh, a serious student all the time. And so, you know, I had good grades, but not great grades. Um, so I ended up at Whittier Law School. And, um, you know, I realized when, before I got there that um, it was very, I, I read a book um, called Law School Confidential. And um, it was just kind of like a guide for basically pretty much like your first year. And, and I also didn't have any lawyers in the family. Um, so I had really nobody to lean on to like tell me what to do or what to expect. And so, but it was it was painfully obvious to me that, um, and then I was using the NALP directory uh, online and, and looking at these law firms and seeing where they interview at, you know, it was painfully obvious to me that it was gonna be really difficult. Um, it was gonna be an uphill battle, a tough sell to get a first year law student from Whittier Law School uh, <clears throat> into into like one of these big law firms that I was thinking of. And, you know, this is also in like 2000, uh, you know, t- I started law school in 2006 mm-hmm. uh, or 2005, uh, in the summer of 2005. 
And so, um, so I, I basically, I decided that, you know, I have to, I really have to have my mindset on transferring to a different, to another law school that, um, you know, as you know, and probably a lot of the, the lawyers who are listening to this or who will be listening to this know that, you know, the U.S. Uh, News and World Report law school rankings are like, you know, that's whether we like it or not, that's really like the kind of like currency of law schools. And, you know, by and large, I think they kind of get it. They get it right. But it's like it's not you know, it shouldn't be the end all be all that it's treated as. And so, um, so anyway, so I studied, I studied enough to get, uh, to transfer over to Loyola Law School. Mm. Um, so I started my, uh, my second year there, but I ended up getting admitted, uh, really late, like maybe a couple weeks before school started. And so I actually ended up missing out on the on-campus interview process. Oh, wow. So, you know, again, in hindsight, it was, um, it was probably, I, I had actually been accepted to Santa Clara University and, um, you know, in the law school rankings at the time, I don't actually know what they are now, but in the law school rankings at the time, it was like, you know, Santa Clara was a little lower than, than mm-hmm. uh, Loyola Law School. And so I decided that I would go to Loyola since it was a higher rated law school. Um, and, you know, that really just, you know, so I missed the process, the yeah. on-campus interview process. And that, you know, as you know, is your second year of your law school. That's yeah, like that's a huge, tough. huge, uh, you know, that's your gateway to getting into a law firm. Um, so I ended up working my, <clears throat> so I ended up finding a, um, a law clerk uh, job at a, at a firm at the time that was known as Tressler, Soderstrom, Maloney and Priest. Um, they had an office in down uh, Century City, which is a, like a LA, um, era it's a city in LA mm-hmm. near uh, Beverly Hills um, and so I, I ended up working there doing some insurance work the summer of my second year and then um, you know we got to uh, you know got did enough <clears throat> did enough work to you know get in, get an offer back and I had really it, it was it, as I said I was doing a lot of insurance coverage and what I really had my mind kind of what I wanted to do what I thought was interesting from a legal perspective again without having like really any understanding of what truly was interesting to me or not was I thought I'd like to be do something in like business law Mm -hmm. um and so I so I was really kind of like holding out a a what was a false hope really was it I can maybe get a job at a at a law firm um doing some sort of corporate law after I graduate from Loyola and this was like you know law, law school started for the third year like you know August of 2008 right and, um, you know, then we ended up as, as you know, uh, you know, in like September of 2008, um, you know, like, uh, you know, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, they all collapsed. And I remember sitting in class and like seeing the headlines, right? And, and um, you know, that was, I was kind of part of the first class um, that was affected by this like new law kind of paradigm shift where they weren't really taking in bloated uh, first year uh, law student cl- uh, anymore and so or first year associate classes mm-hmm. rather and so what happened was I saw you know right around the time I saw that um, a lot of my classmates who were a lot smarter than me and had jobs at much bigger firms were starting to get um, their their start dates deferred and so I you know eventually I saw the writing on the wall I said you got to take this job doing insurance coverage even if it's not you know the most interesting work for you because it's better to have a job than have no job Yes. Um, and so, you know, so I, I called them and I said, yeah, I'll take the job. Right. And so I ended up working for working for them. And then, you know, it's, you know, luck on my side, I guess, would have it, um, you know, they, but it's not good for anybody else. Right. Is that the economy just, you know, just entered a free fall. 
And so a lot of my classmates who had their entries deferred uh, or their start dates deferred, they ended up getting, um, they ended up just getting their offers rescinded. And so, you know, a lot of them were just, you know, they, there are people who I'm not close with anymore, but, you know, I, I've still connected with them on LinkedIn. They started their own practices and, you know, it's really necessity is, you know, as they say, is the mother of uh, mother of invention, right? And, you know, you had to do what you had to do. So, so I think we are still feeling some of the aftershocks of that because there, for certain practice types, especially those where there wasn't enough work to go around, there, what the net result was big dislocations in the talent pipeline. So mm-hmm. if normally the process by which you uh, mint attorneys is you try to do, a, you know, at a, so at many larger firms, the, you're, there's almost like a, uh, a cascading waterfall mm-hmm. of work, right? And so it spills from the bucket that's just above you. And so it's kind of at the level that uh, is, it works for you. And there's somebody who hasn't you know, lost what it feels like to not know, hasn't lost what it feels like to, to, to not know how to do something. And so they end up in many instances being good teachers because they still can recapture that naivety and explain things to you. Mm-hmm. And I think we've seen in many practices uh, where the work dried up, there are just these big gaps and dislocations uh, because there just wasn't enough work to go around and so people weren't getting the training. And there were you know people who I saw coming out of law school where, you know, I mean, I think a lot, most people have figured it out, but I think the vector on their careers were really impacted, right? And the normal opportunity path that kind of results in a certain velocity in career, uh, 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 career has just they were just fundamentally impacted. Mm-hmm. And I think many people figured it out, as you mentioned, but there's a lot of people who th- it, it really has had lasting impact. And so I, I think there's a lot of people who, like you, were very capable and it didn't work out for them. And so it was just fortune, right? Yeah. That, uh, what initially looked like maybe uh, an opportunity that was not quite as prestigious ultimately gave you real work that you could cut your teeth on mm-hmm. and become a real attorney. So you, you're doing insurance defense. Yeah. Well, it was insurance coverage, insurance right? Insurance coverage, like yes. You're just, you're writing like, you know, long formal memos, <clears throat> you know, every day about uh, whether an insurance company should or should not, uh, you know, grant some sort of coverage, coverage to yeah. an insured. Right. So it was mostly like general liability policy. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, but anyway, we don't need to get into the specifics of that. But yeah, that's, that's what I was doing. So at some point you realized that that's not what you want to do for the rest of your life. And what, what, what did you do? Well, so so by this point, um, I should mention I, I moved up to uh, to San Francisco. I took a job at a, at another insurance firm, and I at this point I had actually um, it, you know it had been a, it had been a couple years. And um, to your to your question, I you know one I don't remember when it exactly hit me, but I just remember it got to the point where I was I was going to work, and you know I I, I like to think that I have a pretty good you know I'm I'm pretty aware like self aware of. You know other people's, uh, you know other people's perceptions, right? And it was pretty clear that like you know they weren't they, the law firm wasn't necessarily you know investing some resources in me, and you know let's be honest, like I wasn't fully invested, you know, in in my line of work because it just it wasn't it just it wasn't getting me excited, and I think it was kind of like a chicken or egg problem, right? And I don't know what precipitated the other, but 
you know, I, I think I just, I woke up one day and I was like, you know, I can't, I can't do this for another, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Um, you know, these, everybody I see is working really hard and, um, you know, it's just like, you know, for, for what, you know, to what end, like, I'd rather be doing something that I, that I truly enjoy. Um, and then, you know, at this time I had also, one of the associates in the firm I worked at had gone on maternity leave and this was kind of like another, you know, in hindsight, right. It was like another, just kind of like fortuitous stroke of luck on my part, but, um, she did a lot of, uh, asbestos work. Mm. And so you're probably, you know, like, what does asbestos work have to do? Like there's a, an attorney you're interviewing at Microsoft who supports developer tools, who, uh, is telling you about how he did asbestos work. And, uh, is luck would have it the the um, the partner that I worked for was based out of Portland, and so she just had a lot of cases, and so she couldn't manage every single one. And so what she really did was she um, she leveraged the associates who were in the local offices to kind of be like a case manager. But not only that, she empowered you to do like pretty much whatever you felt was necessary to push the case forward. So I had no idea. Asbestos litigation was like is like its own world, right? There's like special rules, and sometimes they have rules that say they're like depublished, but like they're not actually depublished, and people are still actually going off these old rules. And so anyway, it was it's like like not the wild west, but it was it was pretty crazy and a wild experience. But the great news when I did this was I um, was I had. Uh, I had spent a lot of time uh, interfacing with um, with this one, this one big client I had, who was a, a machinery company out of um, out of uh, like Switzerland, right? And they they actually had a policy that they felt that they were like kind of they, they just supplied machinery to these uh, a lot of like paper mills, and so they were very skeptical of the their liability um, for asbestos litigation because you didn't need to insulate. Um, their products, right? Because they were just, they were just big machinery. Um, and so they had a policy that they didn't want to, if you've been, if you've done like, you know, certain types of litigation, you see that it's like the same kind of like plaintiff's firms, right? And it's like the same kind of cases. And like, you know, some, some companies make the decision, which is, it's, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's like, it's totally rational, which is they would rather just um, pay off the plaintiff. Um, than be embroiled in litigation for years to come. And especially when it's something like asbestos where there's like, you know, there could be like hundreds of cases on the docket at any one time. So this client that I worked for had a policy of just not, they didn't want to settle um, because they didn't feel like they, they, one, they didn't feel like they were liable, but two, they didn't want to set a precedent of um, setting more plaintiff's firms to go after them. And so, um, so anyway, so it was a great experience because I was going to, I was going to court and just arguing a lot, but I was also talking to the clients directly and I was talking to the GC of this, mm. of this company. And I was really, you know, I was like, I was probably a fourth or fifth year associate at the time. And I was, you know, I was writing briefs all the time. I was going to court. I was arguing with the opposing counsel and a lot of my peers weren't having that experience at the same time. And it even got to the point where, um, we, we had lost a motion for, um, for the specifics, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, jumble them up here, and yeah. probably someone's gonna someone's gonna know that I, I'm not using the right nomenclature. But it was like a, it was like a motion for summary adjudication or something, mm-hmm. and it ended up getting uh, the court ended up denying it. And so I had found some some obscure uh, section in the California Code of Civil Procedure, um, whatever the uh, the MSJ 
uh, motion for summary judgment statute mm-hmm. is, and it was like subsection like F2 or something. And it said that you could actually retry, you could relitigate uh, um, like a motion for summary judgment or motion for summary adjudication, something like that. And I forget the specifics, but I, there had been like almost no case law on it. But I found this and I was like, yeah, it's pretty clear. And there were a couple cases that said, yeah, you could re-litigate this. So I, anyway, so I, I re-litigated it. And I talked to one of our appellate attorneys at the firm. And he's like, there is no way this is going to get heard by the California Court of Appeals. So we worked on it. And um, you know, he comes to my office a couple days later. And I'm not familiar with the appeals process at all. And he says, you know, hey, have you gotten a postcard from the Court of Appeals? Because you're supposed to get a postcard that says you're basically like nine out of ten cases get a postcard that says you're, you know, thanks for sending your appeal. But we're not going to hear it. And I said, no, I haven't seen anything. And so he's like, oh, I think we might actually have a shot of getting this heard, right? And so then, you know, eventually a week or two later, we get this this letter from the Court of Appeals which says, we want to hear your case. And I'm like, wow, this is this is great. <laughs> you know, but I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and But we end up, you know, we end up like getting into uh, settlement negotiations at that point with mm-hmm. the, uh, to dis- the, the, uh, the uh, plaintiff offered just to dismiss us, right? Because they didn't want to spend, you know, a lot of time like litigating something with the California Court of Appeals. So they made it, you know, a rational decision, right? But uh, this is a long way of me telling you, you know, so anyway, so I'm gathering this. At this point, I'm like, I'm realizing I w- would like to get out of, <clears throat> you know, doing litigation, especially this. Um, but... Uh, you know, I'm getting this valuable experience and um, as you know, we'll get to a little bit later, it's, it was, you know, crucial, um, crucial experience that I gained. But, you know, the other thing I'll say is like, the thing I found frustrating was, you know, it's hard to go um, to, it, it's hard to convince even other law firms if you started doing, um, you know, like in my case, insurance coverage, right, or insurance litigation. You know, these law firms will typically, you know, they, they and law firms aren't the only ones who are guilty of this, right? but they see you as an insurance lawyer and it's like, you can't, you know, you're not possible, you're not possibly capable of, you know, doing insert any other practice area here. Right. And so that's, that's super frustrating. So, you know, so I'm like, I've made this decision or I've had this thought occur to me that I don't want to do this, but then I also have this like, you know, other like really cold, hard fact that's, you know, confronting me in the face that says like, Hey, it's really hard to convince the law firms um, to, take you take a chance on you you know mr insurance coverage litigator attorney um to do something that's totally you know like do like corporate law right but you but you still have these ambitions to do something else yeah and you're starting you're you're now you're accruing even more expertise in a path that is perhaps has some interesting aspects to it but it's not the future you want yeah and so how did you solve for the rigidity of people's minds like how did, what what was the step that you took that opened up opportunities for you that were not just a continuation of what you were doing so i uh so i, I really honestly i just i flail around for probably nine months i just would submit resumes you know here or there and then uh, one day I was talking to a friend who says, oh, you know, why don't you talk to um, the, she was an associate attorney at, um, at another, uh, at a startup in San Francisco. And so she put me in touch. So it was through a friend of a friend. And so I, I, asked, I asked this attorney if I could at least like, you know, pick her brain and pay for her lunch. So I still remember it. It was I still remember it like it was yesterday. So she sits down with me and she's like, "Hey, why don't you bring your resume and we'll just chat?" And so she starts telling me. She says, "Hey, you know, I I kind of was in a similar spot to you." And it's like that was the first time I had heard anybody say 
like I'm I've been in a similar spot to you and then she proceeded to lay out this like blueprint that she that she used and it was like oh my god like it became clear at that point right it's like that's the eureka moment and she told me that what she did was she went to she started off as a contracts manager and so if you're you know if you're familiar like i think i would imagine a lot of your listeners are right is that um you know a contracts manager is you're doing a lot of things that a lawyer does you're just you're not an attorney you don't necessarily need an attorney degree or a law degree right and so you um so these so i so she says go look at these positions they're called contracts managers contracts negotiators and she's like you know that's a really good stepping stone into going into in-house counsel so I'm so it's like at that point it's like okay well you know I, I now I have my marching orders now I know what I need to do and so you know by you know by luck or whatever you want to call it right I had just gotten this like extremely valuable tidbit of information and so I set up some job alerts and I started um, you know looking at, you know scouring like LinkedIn and places like that for jobs and so I just started looking at these contract manager positions and I was reading them you know you read them and it's and they are actually very similar to um, to what like a you know a commercial attorney does more but it's like you're basically you're helping the sales team uh, negotiate contracts with customers. And so what I did was I, you know, I, I, I made a habit of looking at these job alerts like every day, and I, I tried to, I tried to send out, look at. So what ha- would happen? I was get, I would get a job alert if it seemed interesting, right? And at this point, you can't be very picky because you're, you know, you're. <laughs> yeah, I was somewhere where I, you know, I didn't want to be in. I kind of, you know, I saw the writing on the wall that like it probably wouldn't end well if I stayed there for another year. So it was like I had this pressure, and then I, and then I, I started looking, and so I, I couldn't be particularly uh, picky, but I would go on LinkedIn when I saw a job uh, that was interesting, and I would, I would type in the company, and then I would go through and I would look, and I would see, do I have any connections, you know, with this company? And more often than not, I never had like a first degree connection, right? But I had a lot of second degree connections in LinkedIn. And um, I would, and and so what I would look for is I, as I started to get, as I started doing this more and more, I started getting better. And so I realized it like, it's better to have a connection with someone who's a recruiter at that company than like with, you know, someone who's like a, you know, an engineer or something, right? So I would reach out to a friend that I knew, you know, I wouldn't reach out to ever, I think, if if most people are like me, you know, you probably have too many LinkedIn connections who like you don't actually stay in touch with, and like you wouldn't be comfortable reaching out to them. And so, um, so I tried to just reach out to the people that I was that I was comfortable talking to, and like that I would go up to. My rule of thumb was like if I saw them, you know, like on the street, like at a bar, at a restaurant, or just you know somewhere. Um, and if I if I would walk up to them and say hi to them on the street, then I would I would send them a message. And so you know you'd be surprised more often than not when you reached out to somebody, you would say hey you know, such and such, would you, like, I'm applying for this position here. Like, would you just mind, you know, mentioning my name to the, to the recruiter? Like, I don't know who the recruiter is for this, but I see you're connected to this person. And you would be surprised. Like you get very, I get a very positive response rate from these, uh, from the people I reached out to. And, you know, that was really just getting my foot in the door and that was great. And then from there, right. It's just, once you have your foot in the door, then it's like, you know, some combination, which I found of, you know, just connecting with the recruiter, you know, and then also, and then right after that, it's like, you have to talk to the hiring manager or whoever you're interviewing with, you know, that's actually on the legal team. You have to connect with them and convince them that, you know, um, that you know what you're doing or that like your, your lack of experience, direct experience. Um, so how did you hack that? Because 
the initial <clears throat> shape of your career, you know, if you've got all this litigation experience, doesn't necessarily line up with, you know, all the words that they might be expecting you to have on your resume. So what did you, did you do anything to, to help shape the, the view on the experience you, you had? And did you do anything that you think helped you interview and show well when you got in the door? Yeah, so I I did, so one thing that I did was I, I, I read, I was very meticulous about reading the job descriptions. And so if you read job descriptions, right, like they, they kind of use the same like buzzwords like over and over again, you know, and um, and then when, when I had talked to a couple other like in-house attorneys, as I, as I started to get better at this, I realized that, you know, it was, it, and then I started thinking about it in terms of my experience. And this is where I get back to the what I when I was talking about the asbestos litigation. It was I realized that asbestos litigation is not corporate law by any means, but a vast majority of the skills you're doing are are the same exact thing. It's just you're calling them different. You're just you're using you're using synonyms, right? And so when I when that light bulb went off, it was like, oh my gosh, like I've just been <laughs> I've been describing I've been using litigation words when I'm applying for a, a corporate job. And it seems so obvious and like stupid now, right? But at the time it wasn't. Um, I just was again like just kind of grasping in the dark. And so it was like, you know, you're in when you're in-house, right? You're you're dealing with stakeholders. Your stakeholders are all internal, right? Um, at a law firm, you're still dealing with stakeholders. You just have two sets of stakeholders. You have your internal stakeholders who are the lawyers you're working with and for, and then you have your external stakeholders who are like what you would consider your clients, um, who are the ones who are paying your bills. And so when you start analogizing those, the jobs that you're doing, right? So it's, you're, you're advising your, you know, you're advising in, in a law firm, you're advising your internal stakeholders first because, you know, they oftentimes they're like the gatekeeper, right? Because they're not going <laughs> to, most partners aren't going to let uh, a young associate go talk directly to the, um, to the client without, <laughs> without at least running the idea by them first and making sure that it's, you know, sane and, <laughs> and coherent. Um, and so, you so you have to you have to learn how to articulate your viewpoint to that client and then you also then you learn when you go to the your actual client at the law firm how to articulate you know what you're what you're recommending or why you're recommending it and you know that skill is no different than what you're doing in house right you're just it's just you're doing something different you're talking about maybe like you know my now my current job right it's like maybe I'm talking about privacy or I'm talking about compliance with some third party terms but it's like you're still talking, you're interpreting a law when you're in-house and you're just, you're interpreting, you know, legal terms, right? It's like the same skill interpretation is there. And so really to your to your question, like what the hack was, is it was just, it was sitting down, it was like a puzzle, right? It's just seeing like what what experience the law firm is asking you or what experience the, the, the job description says they need. And then, hey, how can I describe what I'm doing? At, you know, it's not, and what I'm not saying is lie about what you're doing. What I'm saying is, you know, you're just figure out what you're doing and how that actually makes you know, fits into the bucket that the the job description is asking for. And once you do that, then it's like, so that was the grit. So that was like in, on paper, right? That was how, that was how I did it. And then, you know, of course you update your LinkedIn profile and everything. But then like, you know, that's like 
probably in my opinion, like maybe, you know, 10 or 15% of the battle, right? Then, then the real part, right, is you have to go in, you have to convince someone who's very skeptical about why they have, why they have this guy who's, you know, <laughs> he's, he's currently doing asbestos litigation and now he's interviewing for a contract manager position. Like, you know, this, this, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're inherently, they're going to be, they're going to be biased against you. Right. And it's not, you know, when you look at it from their perspective, right, it's totally reasonable for them to think like, Hey, I don't know that this guy knows what he's doing. So it's your job. Then at that point, then I realized it was, my job wasn't to really articulate my experience to them. It was to articulate my experience to them as like a story that like, Hey, I, I started off doing insurance coverage, then I moved to insurance litigation. Then I did this whole new area of law, the asbestos litigation. And like, they didn't need to know anything about asbestos litigation or insurance litigation for that matter, right? They just needed to know that I was that it was something completely different. And I figured it out within a couple months and I felt like I was doing a pretty good job at it. And so you just have to convince them that you're, you know, all things aside, like you're the best candidate for the job because even though you don't necessarily have the direct experience, like if they train you up and they're willing to invest their time in you, that at some point you're gonna be the best, they're gonna be really thankful that they hired you because you're gonna be a great candidate going forward. So there's a couple elements about your story that I think are very worth highlighting. So one, your initial experience, even if it was not on point for the things you would do later, gave you deep, direct client experience. And being able to engage directly with the client, being able to communicate with them, being able to understand their needs, being able to be responsive to that, I, 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 I'll just say that that is a very transferable skill set. And yeah. it sounds like that skill you're deploying with every role that you have afterwards. The other thing is you're you're really you got very masterful at giving people linkage between what you can do and what they want you to do. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing and I agree with is you often have to give people the narrative, the view on like here is the bridge between where I am and where you want to go. Yeah. And I can walk that bridge because I've done it before. And then I suspect that implicit in what you were offering is don't examine the value I bring today. Yeah. Project out. Look at my track record of landing somewhere, growing, and, and, and then running and being autonomous and being a good teammate and doing, you know, delivering great value. And don't judge me today. Let's project out six months, a year, two years, and then think, am I the right candidate for this role based on not where we are today, mm-hmm. but where things are going? So treat this as rather than a point in time, think of it as a vector, and we're both along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, to, to add on what you say, like from my perspective, right then I had done it, I, I had interviewed enough times. You know, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was interviewing, you know, every day or every week. Um, you know, I still wasn't getting like, you know, hits, hits on the, on a regular basis. But one of the things to me, which was like, Hey, you know, a a lot of these companies, if they were willing to, um, if they were willing to take a chance, even just interviewing me, right. That was a big signal to me that the company I'm, I'm working at or interviewing at rather is like probably going to be a relatively decent place to work because if they're already comfortable interviewing someone who has no direct experience, then it tells me something about, you know, at least not necessarily company, but at least the, the, you know, legal department or lawyer that I'm interviewing with. So yeah, to your point, it's, you have to, yeah, you just have to get creative and Mm -hmm. think about it and 
you know, come and, up with your hacks. Yeah, and you got your reps in. So if, yeah. you're, if you're interviewing that frequently, I imagine you got very good at it. Yeah, you know, you get you get your like your muscle memory right, and um, and you know the other the other kind of like things that I picked up on right is I um, I went to. Uh, I went to junior college, and this this story will make sense in a second. And I played; uh, I, I was on the football team. Um, and I remember my—I uh, always remember this advice, right? And the and the the football coach always said, "Hey, if you guys want, because everyone there, you know, was was by and large wanting to get a scholarship to some other to a, a four-year university to continue playing football for you know two or three years, right? And he, the football coach, always said, "Hey, you know, if you get." even like a one offer for like a letter of interest from a four-year university, you know, and a, and a second recruiter comes to you and says, are you being recruited by another school? You should always say, yes, I'm being recruited by another school. I'm like, you don't have to name the school, but it's like, you know, you're not, are you being like, uh, <laughs> like hundred percent truthful about it? Like, I mean, not really. They just sent you a letter, but like, yeah, I mean, they sent you a letter and like, they don't send everybody a letter. Right. And so to me, like the other thing I picked up on was like, and so his point, right, was that like basically people want reassurance that like they're not, you know, that that other people see what they see in you, right? And so, you know, one of the things I realized was like, you know, telling, finding a way if you are interviewing with other companies, right, to find a way to slip in during your interview process, right? Like, you know, hey, like I'm also, you know, in my other interviews I've been doing, you know, you don't have to say like who you're interviewing with or like, you know, what your interview was, right? But like you say, you know, in my other interviews, right? And then the second to me, that was like, I realized that was kind of like a signal to them that like, hey, you know, this guy is interviewing other places. And it was true. Like I was interviewing other places. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to tell them that I was interviewing. <laughs> I'd only been interviewing at like maybe, you know, one other place at the time, but it was like, to them, it was a powerful signal um, that, uh, you know, they were, they were onto something. Yeah, no, that makes all kinds of sense. Uh, so humans, we have all these biases mm-hmm. that basically creep into our decision and judgment processes. And one of them is exactly what you identified, which is effectively, there's, there's a couple elements in what you said. One is the, the competition angle, right? Like, yeah. oh, well, if, if, if somebody else is, is seeking this this person who's an asset, mm, okay. Well, yeah, right. yeah. But the other thing that I, I agree with is it basically de-risks the decision, right? Yeah. Because if it's like, well, somebody else who probably is uh, is scratching this lottery ticket is saying, hmm, it's, it's worth a look, then, yeah. well, gosh, I, I guess that means there's a good chance that there's something there. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you're right that the, this is one of the hacks that yeah. one can absolutely employ. And, you know, of course, we're not saying do anything that's untruthful. But, right, right. You know, within the... Within the uh, the realm of, of statements that are are accurate, uh, yeah. I I agree. I think you can absolutely give people a sense of yes, I am in the market and there I'm having conversations with people. Yeah, and you you should be aware of that. Yeah. So, no, I, I think that's that is valid. Yeah. Um, it also suggests that you need to be in motion, right? So oh, yeah. for that to be a valid and true statement, yeah. <laughs> it, it probably doesn't uh, it doesn't ring quite as true if it's like, yes, I was absolutely doing that eight or 10 months ago. <laughs> uh, so, the, you know, that's good. So I'm curious, how did you keep your confidence up as you were doing this? Because, you know, constantly going in there and kind of muscling through these interviews, it takes, it's, that's emotional labor. How did you stay up? Yeah, you know, it was like, it, it, for me, it was actually, it was was, I found it weird because like you, the jo- I always found the job looking at the job search process very exhausting and time consuming, right? But the when I when I decided I need to make a habit of it, 
which meant like, you know, every time there was a job posting that I saw, I didn't put it on. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to respond to this tonight. It was like, no, I'm going to respond to this right now, as long as I was at a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I did that, it was like, you know, okay. And then you, and then you just kind of like, once you've built up the muscle memory, right? It's like, it wasn't a thing about confidence. It was, so it wasn't a matter of like, can I get hired at a, at a, at a firm? At some point, my mindset changed to like, when will I be hired at, at a mm-hmm. company? And so that muscle memory just, you know, just at some point it just, it becomes second nature, right? And you're, you know, you go into overdrive. So you see the job listing, you go to LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. you, you know, see if you have connections, you reach out to those connections, you submit your resume, you tell them you submitted your resume. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you just, you do it. And the, I guess the important thing, right. Is like, you know, not to, is not what you just basically what you said, right. The, the response to your question really is just, you can't, you can't allow yourself to get dejected because it's super easy because you're, you know, is, um, I don't have to tell anyone who's been, who's tried to make a conversion from like, you know, one role at a, as a lawyer to a completely different role, right? It's, it is dejecting. You get, you go way more, way more no's than you get any yeses, right? But you have to be persistent. And like, at some point, you know, your luck is going to change. Mm-hmm. And I just, I had that in my mind. I've always been an optimist, I guess. And so that probably helps me too. But, um, you know, I was really just like, be, be, be annoying, I guess. It's like, not annoying to the people you're interviewing, right? But like, to the point where your habit is like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like so ingrained that it's, you, well, know, I think, you just, just got to do it. I think you just nailed it right there. Because when you, the, if I were going to break what you just described into some pieces, I'd say there is a habit, mm-hmm. right? You have a very refined process that you're using to, to effectively try to drive your outcome. Mm-hmm. And it's all supported by uh, what, what's often referred to as the Stockdale paradox, which is the fundamental belief that the good outcome will happen but it's not predicated on any specific timetable because if you get over-indexed on, oh, it'll be done in two months or, oh, it'll be done in six months or, oh, I'll do this many and it'll be done, then that makes you very brittle. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you, what I'm hearing in you is a lot of resilience. Like, you know, this is going to take as long as it's going to take, but I'm going to keep after it and yeah. good things will happen. Yeah. And that process that you just described works for a whole lot of things. Oh, yeah. Uh, so job searches, uh, you know, learning things, figuring out how to grow. Like, it, it is, I would say that what you just described is is a skill that can be deployed to, to really help do almost anything you want to get done in life. Yeah, it's true. Uh, so that's really cool. So I want to jump into your progression into being what is effectively a, a business and IP attorney. Yeah. So, you, you land a contract manager job. Yeah. And then take me through, like, what, what are the next hops? How, did, how does it happen? So I, uh, so I, so I start off as a contracts manager and then, you know, within, you know, at some point, right, you have to, you get confident as your role in a contracts manager mm-hmm. and you realize you're like, you know, Hey, I'm not really doing much. I realized, you know, maybe, I don't know, six months in or so like, Hey, you know, I'm probably not doing anything different than what the attorneys here do. Um, but it's also like you have to be there's like you know you have to you have to take very you have to understand the the political environment you're in too like at your at your office right and it's like if you know it doesn't seem like it's right to rock the boat like you know you can't rock the boat at six months but what I realized was you know I could I, there were ways that I could raise it that weren't that didn't come across as like being really aggressive and uh, to use a word I just used a few minutes ago annoying right. Mm-hmm. Um, was to be like to and and the way to do it right is to be very thoughtful like say hey you know this is this is what like I was hired to do. Um, you know, I'm doing this and I'm doing more. And so like, you know, I think, 
this promotion or you know this title change right is warranted. Um, so I so I started so anyway so I, I got you know I, I think it was like within nine months or so I got promoted to corporate counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that point, Caveri- when I got hired at Caverity, they had been acquired by a, a company um, by the name of Synopsis. Mm-hmm. And so by that point, I was working for Synopsis. And um, you know, at some point, you know, within like maybe a year and a half, I said, you know, I'd really like to go back to a startup and see because Caverity had had like a little. I had been there for like a little bit of like the kind of startupy. Um, phase and I was like that it would be cool to go see that again so I started looking around but I really enjoyed where I was at it's like I didn't I didn't feel like the same kind of like pressure that I did the first time around which was really great and then the other great thing was like you know once I had one in-house job um, it really opened doors like I wasn't I didn't have to like you know hustle as hard as Mm -hmm. I felt like I had to the first time around so I ended up eventually um, submitting my resume to a company by the name of Xamarin and um, I ultimately ended up getting hired at Xamarin and it was like you know, I, I think there was like maybe like 300 employees, three, 400 employees when I got hired. Um, so I was the second attorney um, there. And again, it was like, it was just supporting commercial work. Um, it, was, it was working with the sales team, helping them, uh, you know, scale out their, their enterprise sales team and the rest of their scale or the rest of their sales process. Right. Um, and so, you know, so I started, I started in like, I think it was like January 4th of uh, 2016. And then uh, February, like it was like February, I think it was like February, like 26 or something. So it was like a month and a half later, the uh, the other attorney at Xamarin call, calls me over and he says, hey, um, I want to tell you something. Uh, Microsoft is going to buy us tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> so my first thought is, are we allowed to cuss on this podcast? Sure. So, so my first thought is, oh, shit. <laughs> I just, I just left, I just left a, uh, <laughs> I just left a job, a relatively stable job to go to a startup job of this company had 10,000 people. <laughs> now I'm going to a company and now I'm working, going to be working for a company that has a hundred thousand people. And then my next thought was, do I actually have a job? <laughs> and to that he says, I, I'm not sure yet. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, so we, so, you know, in March, the acquisition was actually formalized. So we were really just kind of continuing like business as is, supporting the sales team. And then, um, you know, I don't know, at some point, like, you know, once you've, after you've been acquired, there's like an integration process, right? And so, um, you know, uh, Tyler Fuller, who, you know, was, uh, he was our manager at the time and he was managing the integration. And, um, you know, he comes down and says, hey, you know, you guys are going to be working on, on, uh, on my team. You guys are going to be joining my team. And so he's, you know, the way he describes it is like, you know, my thought, my head, like the wheels are spinning. I'm like, man, this doesn't sound like anything I do. Like, I don't even know anything about this. Um, and it's like what he's describing is like, you know, business and IP lawyer. And um, I had always kind of had my eyes, like eventually in my head, I had kind of like worked out that like maybe, you know, like four or five years down the road, I would try to, you know, get into one of these roles. Right. But, um, you know, I just Microsoft <laughs> inadvertently made it happen for me a lot faster. Right. And um, but again, it was like it was very similar to all the other things we've been talking about today. And the, the transition just involved me, you know, learning a new skill. And I didn't have any technical background, um, but you know, here I am today. It's like you know, we're in September 11th, 2018, right? And I, you know, we joined Microsoft in like you know March ish of 2016, and you know, I've been doing supporting you know the, the developer division for like a little over two years, right? And it's like you know, it's it's been very rewarding, and um, it's been fun to learn a whole new side of the business, and also just like as a personal side, right? It's like it's been cool to. See see that like you know wow you can really learn 
you know, you can learn this stuff. So, you know, all the, you know, anyway, to all the, all the attorneys out there who are doing like, you know, litigation or something or something that, and they want to do some other, like, you know, they want to come in house, right. It's, you know, it's totally doable. You just, you just have to believe in yourself. Right. <laughs> and you have to, uh, and you have to, um, you know, you just, you, you just have to like devote some time to it. Right. And it's be patient. And, uh, you know, as long as you, you work a little bit at your craft every day, you know, eventually you'll get there. So this is all true, and it's accurate, but there's another superpower. So I, I, I have had the benefit of watching you work close up, and you have tireless work ethic. You're very smart, and that's, that's all good and necessary. But the thing that causes you to really thrive is that you don't get in your own way by pretending you don't know things. And that is the thing that causes you to learn so quickly. You are unafraid of asking questions and getting in there. And when somebody says, oh, go read this, go digest this, you're not afraid to do the hard work. But I see so many people in our profession who basically get stuck in that, well, I feel like I should know this. And so mm -hmm. they get very afraid to, to, to ask brave, naive questions. Yeah. And I watched your progression go like a rocket ship because every big step you took forward, you didn't start taking those half steps, right? You, you kept saying like, no, 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 like, well, okay, so what is this thing? Yeah. And I have seen you get into the weeds on the most technically complex elements of our business here, and it's because you're fearless. And you will get in there and be like, look, I may not know exactly what's going on here today, but I have an unflinching belief that I will keep digging until I have mastered this. Yeah. And again, that is absolutely a skill. And I've watched you deploy it on multiple occasions. And it's why I think your career progression here has been so strong. Because yes, you're smart. Yes, you're you know you're hardworking, but you're just completely unafraid of, of the, the process of learning. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think part of it, right, and, and thank you for the kind words, is, um, you know, you also, like, I, one thing I left out, right, is, like, I also had great mentors, um, you know, at Microsoft since I've been here, right, and, like, you were willing, you know, it also requires, it takes a village, right, you have to have people who are willing to entertain your questions and don't just brush you off, right, and, you know, you were a great mentor, you know, Tyler, everybody's been, and everybody still to this day, is, you know, you can lean on so many people here, and that's, like, the benefit of working at a, at a company of the size, or inside just a legal department the size of Microsoft, right, is there's, like, you know, 400 plus attorneys here right um but you know one of the one of the things i realized when i started right is that you can't really <laughs> you can the saying fake it till you make it right and like you can't if you don't know if you don't know anything about technical stuff it's like it's very hard to fake it right and so you know my my policy was like you know i you have to be just straight up honest with these clients who are meeting you some of them who are meeting you for the first time right and you have to tell them like hey i don't have any, a technical background but you know, I'm willing to, I'm willing to put in the work and learn and, you know, figure this out for you, but you have to give me some time and you're gonna have to put up with some, what you might perceive as some really stupid questions, but like, I need that basic, you know, base level knowledge to even get to like your question. And so like, come with me on this journey and, uh, you know, it'll be rewarding for both of us in the end. Right. And like, it's, you know, now it's rewarding, right. It's like some, you know, when I ask questions and I think it's like, wow, I would have never thought about this, <laughs> you know, years ago. But yeah, you get there eventually, right? It's just it's a process, and it doesn't happen overnight. But you know, you can do it. So, I I gotta ask. I mean, you are you've been incredibly thoughtful, reflecting upon your experience 
and figuring out really the, the process of by which you can effectively transition yourself from doing one thing to another. Do you do you give this to other people? Like, I mean, I, you're obviously giving uh, your your blueprint away now, but I, I guess you have all this wealth of information. You have figured out how to do this. Like, are you giving it away? Like, what what's the how, how do people get access to this? Yeah, so I you know I try to I try to pay it forward, right? Um, and but part of it was I realized. Um, you know, early on that I actually had a lot of people on my network who were like hitting me up after I, after I made the transition, even just to like my first in-house job. And they said, Hey, you know, can you help me out with this? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. So it was like, great. I'm totally willing to help them. Right. And then, um, I have a, one of my buddies, um, his brother is a legal recruiter. And so he eventually started sending me people, um, who like I didn't know, but who were, you know, reached out to him, um, who had like similar experience to mine or backgrounds to mine and they wanted to go in house. And so he was like, Hey, you should talk to Billy. Um, and so at that point I realized I was like, you know, I, I only have like so many hours in the day and like, I can't, um, you know, I'm totally willing to help people, but it's like, you know, at some point, you know, I have to, I have to like, you know, make it worthwhile. Right. And so I, so I did a little like consulting business on the side. I experimented. I was like, well, you know, I'll see. So I, I spent a couple like weekends, you know, setting up like a Squarespace website and a couple things. It's now, you know, don't go searching for it because it doesn't exist anymore. But, um, except maybe on like the Wayback machine or something. <laughs> but, um, but I did, you know, I just, it ended up just like really wasn't, um, it, you know, it wasn't, it didn't like, not that I was expecting it to take off, but it was just like, it was more work maintaining it. And I was, I was paying more than I was bringing in. And so I made the, uh, the decision <laughs> quickly to shut it down. Uh, but I still, I still help people. Um, I actually had a, a law school classmate of mine who like just last week, you know, reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about, um, he, he's doing litigation, you know, in the Midwest and he, you know, wants to get in house cause it's, he has two young kids and he thinks, um, you know, so he's just doing his due diligence right now, but he thinks like in-house is maybe a little, you know, more suitable to like being a, you know, a, a present uh, parent um, in his life. And so I encourage him to do it. Right. And I, you know, I've been kind of like helping walking him through the process. So, yeah, I mean, I try to, I try to remember though, getting back to your original question, like I try to remember that like, you know, somebody helped me, right. Like I, that dinner, that lunch I was telling you about, you know, that person didn't have to come meet me for lunch. They didn't have to tell me that, uh, that plan. Um, and, uh, you know, it, they did. And so, you know, it's not lost on me that, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of me's out there, you know, who want to come in here and they don't necessarily want to work for Microsoft, but they want to do something different. And so, you know, even if I can serve as like a, you know, inspiration is too strong a word for what it is, but it's like, if I can just, you know, help people just nudge them on the path to get to where they want to go. Right. Um, you know, I've, happy to happy to help people out so yeah so i do i do try to help people out on occasion i think that is the best of what we are when we serve the profession that we figure out ways <clears throat> to certainly serve our clients and and the world at large but we also don't forget that we all start somewhere yeah it's uh, true so i i applaud you for uh making that that investment in the generations that follow and apparently in your your peers and contemporaries as well um, <laughs> I, again i i just am very uh impressed by the level of thoughtfulness and intention that you have applied to your career and it is a process as we've discussed and i think it's had a lot of really strong results for you yeah um, so that's great thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story i have i get a lot of questions where people ask more or less how do i manufacture a transition from where i am to this other place 
And I think much as that that woman who took you out to lunch, you have now laid out the blueprint for yeah. how you do this. And you, so, now you just you can uh, you can send them a link to the to your to this podcast. Well, you can send them a link. To this, <laughs> this is this is your yeah concept. yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been great uh, chatting with you today. It is always a pleasure, Billy.